today, um, on this Easter Sunday, we are going to be talking about Source 2 for Unitarian Universalism. Source 2 is words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Reverend Nick asked each one of us um, worship associates to uh, pick a source. And I picked this one. And then when we talked about this service, he said, why did you pick this one? And I, you know, kind of had a shrug of my shoulders, didn't really know why. So I did some thinking and I'm gonna try to answer that question. I've always been attracted to quotes that speak to my heart or seem to capture a meaningful truth. Whether it was Anne Frank, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Or MLK, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Or Greta Thunberg. Some say we should not engage in activism. Instead, we should leave everything to our politicians and just vote for change instead. But what do we do when there is no political will? What do we do when the politics needed are nowhere in sight? These people and others like them motivate me. They inspire me. They help me to get off the couch, to do more, to give a little more, to engage. So it only makes sense to me that this should be a source for Unitarian Universalism. You may have noticed that two of the people I quoted were children. It made me think perhaps we could all be prophetic in certain circumstances when we offer encouragement to someone in distress or when we share our experience, strength, and hope. When we help a friend look at a subject with objectivity. These things aren't a huge deal, but it's what I can do with compassion and the transforming power of love. Taking all these wise sayings and applying them to our lives can help us dig deep and find the strength and ability to step up and they can encourage us to look within to what really matters. Come, let us listen. Little John Lewis loved the spring. He loved it not only because it was a time when the whole planet seemed to come alive, but he also loved it because it was the season of chicks. Winter was too cold to bring them safely into the world, and summer was too hot, and spring was just right. Everyone on the farm had work to do. Work and put your trust in God, John's mom liked to say, and God is going to take care of his children. 
trusting in God was easy. Work was a harder bargain. There was so much to do on a huge farm in Southern Alabama. And every March, John hitched the plow to his stubborn old mule and he'd yell, giddy up. And together they'd break new ground, carving lines in the earth. In the fall, after months of planting, weeding, and tending, the cotton will be ready for picking. John's mom cooked family meals from vegetables she grew. Maybe you do this at home, especially for Easter. Collards, tomatoes, sweet potatoes, and other goodies. She cleaned the family's clothes in a big iron pot, stirring them in the boiling water and washing them with handmade soap before hanging them on the line to dry. Yes, Lord, woo, plenty of work on that farm. John was excited to be put in charge of the chickens. There were about 60 of them, Rhode Island Reds, strong-winged bantams, Dominiques with gray stripes as dull as dishwater, and legs as yellow as daisies. John loved to see them flutter and strut <laughs> and flap their wings. And every day, John got up early and he fed them dried corn just shelled from the cob and then lined their nests with fresh straw. I bet the chickens like that. What do you think? Oh, he loved just taking care of those chickens and they would answer his calls of love with cluck, cluck, cluck. And he knew they meant thank you. Can you guys give me some good clucks? Cluck, cluck, cluck. Okay, good. <laughs> That'll come in later. In a softer voice, John would say, enjoy this day that God has given us. And the chickens looking straight at him seemed to understand. As much as John loved spring, he loved church even more. On Sundays, the whole family would head to services. John and his brothers would wear nice slacks and crisp white shirts, and his sisters would wear dresses. And outside the church, family members would greet them and say hello with big smiles. Inside, voices joined in song. John often listened to gospel and country music on the radio. He enjoyed it, but he found his favorite music of all in church, plain voices, praising God without any instruments at all. Maybe you know this one. You could sing along with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was, was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. As the worshipers clapped and sang, John felt the Holy Spirit rocking the room. It reminded him of the peace he felt when he roused the chickens from their slumber and led them into the light of a brand new day. Like the ministers he heard in church, John wanted to preach, like Reverend Nick. 
So he gathered his chickens in the yard and he stretched his arms out above his flock and let the words pour forth. And the chickens nodded and dipped their beaks as if they agreed. They swayed to the rhythm of his voice. And John's brothers and sisters, you know, they couldn't tell one chicken from another. But John, he knew every single one. And he had a line of verse for each of them. Blessed are the peacemakers, he'd say when they fought over their morning meal. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he would tell a hen who didn't want to share, for they shall be satisfied. And one day, the rolling store man stopped by to make a trade. And his truck was packed with flour and sugar and cooking oil and bolts of cloth and bright colors. I've got plenty of things to trade you, he said, plenty of good things. And I'll give them to you for a healthy hen. But John, uh-uh, he wasn't going to have that. He wasn't going to have one of his chickens leave. And he convinced his parents that there were plenty of other things for him to trade, like eggs and seeds. And so those chickens stayed on the farm. And John learned to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And when the hen, Big Bell, fell into the well and got stuck, John was determined to save her. He filled a basket with breadcrumbs and then lowered it down and she climbed in and he pulled her back up to safety. God makes miracles every day, John said. When you're down, he lifts you up. Sister Bell, I believe you know what I mean. And what did you think she said? Clark, 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 clark. <laughs> and John knew she meant Amen. John even baptized the chicks, bathing them in water from an old syrup can. But little Pullet had stayed under too long and appeared to have drowned. And John prayed over her and laid her in the sun. And after a while, she began to breathe again and soon was up on her feet. He can heal the sick, John declared, and raise the dead. Little Pullet, can I get a witness? She went, peep, peep, peep. <laughs> And John knew she meant amen. John loved to tell the hens and chicks the good news. And while he fed and watered them, he spoke about the value of hard work and patience. With faith and hope, he said, a bountiful harvest was sure to come. And John's hen house sermons became so regular that his brothers and sisters took to calling him preacher. He didn't mind. He knew that someday he would speak before thousands. He hoped that his words would stir people's souls and move them to action. For now, though, he had his own church right here among the pine trees and rolling hills of southern Alabama. And morning and Sunday mornings, you would find him in his usual place, preaching to the chickens. I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, 
but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. This is a tragic misconception of time. It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. We must come to see that human, oh, sorry, it can be used either destructively or constructively. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. There are only two things that we know for sure. One, that they stashed Jesus's body in a tomb temporarily until they could get a chance to bury it properly. And when they came back, the tomb was empty. Make of it what you will. There are many possible explanations, some more likely than others. I don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. Neither did Martin or Malcolm. Neither did Viola Luisa or Frozan Safi, the womanist rights activist shot by the Taliban in Afghanistan just last November. Neither will dismembered journalist Jamal Khashoggi or Alexei Navalny when he dies in a Russian prison. Neither will documentary filmmaker Brent Renaud or photographer Maxim Levin, both killed by invading armies in Ukraine. Kevin Strickland and Lamonte McIntyre will not get back the stolen decades of their lives. I don't believe that the crucifixion is a story with a happy ending or that it's a one-time event. It happens over and over as the human journey unfolds. It happens to us and the people we love. It happens to the righteous and the innocent. Crucifixion happens and it feels like the end of the world every time. It feels like nothing could matter anymore, ever. And then, and then inevitably and miraculously, something happens next. Something happens, of course it does, because the world hasn't ended yet. It's not always an empty tomb. How trite would that become? 
Mostly the beloved bodies just lie right there, peacefully decomposing. But something happens, and whether we want it or not, a new chapter begins. Maybe the sun comes up or the lilies do, spring rolls around, that happens, or memories come, or someone needs you. You eat food, that happens. You walk down the road and share a recollection. Life happens, keeps happening. The dead don't rise, but we do. One day it happens, you take a breath and it doesn't hurt to breathe. You start to see people again, really see them. Hope rises, community rises. You rise, we rise, life rises. Not because death isn't real. Crucifixion is not just pretend, but something else is just as real, maybe even more real. Something happens next. That is the other thing we know for sure. Life rises, outrage rises, love rises, faith rises, tears rise, hope rises. This I do believe. Every year around this time, I am reminded of the fraught relationship many Unitarian Universalists have with the themes of Easter. Many of you may have grown up Christian and your worldviews may have changed in some way to where the idea of what exactly happens between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is hard for you to now make sense of. The same may be true perhaps of Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, the other bookend of the Christian narrative. And so as a result, many Unitarian Universalists sort of pass on this holiday or emphasize the secular themes of this time of year. It's sort of like the opposite of those who identify as Christian, but only attend services on Christmas Eve and Easter. You've heard of that. There might be an inverse equivalent for some you use, who sort of sit this one out. And I wanna say why I hope that doesn't continue. The point is that I believe something very important is found in the themes of this time of year, specifically in this pivotal story in Christianity, a religious tradition that we share common ancestry. In my opinion, Easter can be and should be reflected upon as Unitarian Universalists, not just because of our historical connections, which we will explore more in the next two Sundays, but also because there is a tremendous reminder within it regarding the themes of human life and death, of hope and pain, and of possibility of what comes when we least expect it. My colleague, the Reverend Dr. Kendall Gibbons, is one of the most respected humanist ministers in our Unitarian Universalist tradition today. 
She not only was ordained over 40 years ago, she has served at several of the most historic humanist congregations in the United States. And she has practically written the book on modern humanism in Unitarian Universalism. Literally, she did. She co-edited a wonderful book published in 2016 titled Humanist Voices in Unitarian Universalism. Alas, this sermon is not about humanism, although the topic will reemerge as a theme on May 8th in this series on sources. I bring the topic up today because we are endeavoring to unearth the importance of our second UU source. Last week, we began our six-week series on the sources of Unitarian Universalism, and today we continue fittingly on Easter Sunday with our source about prophetic people. And here is the exact language of the second source. It reads that as congregations, we draw meaning from words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Let's say that again. As you use guided, we are guided, we are nourished by the words and deeds of prophetic people which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. As Pam shared this morning in her call to worship, there are many people who have spoken words and, and done deeds that challenge and inspire her to do good in the world. She lifts up something that I think the Reverend Dr. Gibbons would agree, which is that prophetic people, whomever they may be, are very much people. They are human. They are not deity. They are not God any more than you or I are God. Our second source is inherently humanistic in nature, for it focuses on the very human capacity to do good in the world, to speak out against and work to overcome structures of evil, of oppression, of violence, and to transform our world with love. Case in point, I find Reverend Dr. Gibbons' reflection this morning on Easter to be powerfully resonant and potentially opening of our hearts and minds to some of the very human themes that are present in this story of life and death and whatever may come next. Indeed, it is a poem that illustrates the very essence of our second UU source. And she doesn't bury the lead, the hot topic, the big theological question that many UUs grapple with, that many non-UUs grapple with, which is regarding the crucifixion. She writes, personally, I don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. But in addition to this, she also expands her pantheon in her mind of the many other prophetic people that suffered at the hands of oppressive systems and brutal violence, all of whom, in her mind, have not returned either. Reverend Dr. Gibbons reflects, I don't believe that Jesus came back from the, 
from the dead. Neither did Martin or Malcolm. Neither did Viola Luisa or Frozen Safi, the the woman the woman's rights activist shot by the Taliban in Afghanistan last no November. Neither will dismembered journalist Jamal Khashoggi or Alexei Naval Navalny when he dies in a Russian prison. Neither will documentary filmmaker Brent Renaud or photographer Maxim Levin, both killed by invading armies in Ukraine. Kevin Strickland and Lamonte McIntyre will not get back the stolen decades of their lives. All of these people are, through their lives and deaths, prophetic people in both word and deed. Each, in their own way, we're confronting powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. In their humanness, they loved and lived. In their humanness, they were hurt, persecuted, and ultimately killed for their beliefs. In this sense, the crucifixion is not a one-time event as given argues, but rather something that happens over and over and over again. Can you imagine the utter devastation those left behind must have felt in the wake of Jesus's death, or Martin's, or Malcolm's, or any I listed above. Can you imagine the loss, the feeling of hopelessness that can feel like it overshadows any good that may have come from that person's life? Gibbon states bluntly, crucifixion happens and it feels like the end of the world every time. It feels like nothing could matter anymore, ever. But, this is not the end of the story. She goes on to notice a pattern in the prophetic tradition, in the prophetic turning of the world. She says that even after a loss of such magnitude, a death of such horror or scale, an event that shakes the very foundation of the earth, something follows. After such a loss of a prophetic person or message, she writes, Inevitably and miraculously, something happens next. Something happens. Of course it does, because the world hasn't ended yet. Out of the ashes of our grief, something happens. My colleague goes on to explain, maybe the sun comes up or the lilies do, spring rolls around, that happens, or memories come or someone needs you, you eat food, that happens. You walk down the road and share a recollection. Life happens, keeps happening. The dead don't rise, but we do. I was very taken aback by the power of that simple distinction, which might be something you resonate with as well, the distinction that the dead don't rise, but we do. We do not know what happened 2,000 years ago between a Friday and an Easter Sunday. But in many ways, the answer to that question is secondary to the question we face now, which is whether we will rise in the face of death. How will we rise in the face of death? How will we face 
death, the threat of death, or the threat others face that we will never understand? These are the very important questions that relate both to our second source of Unitarian Universalism and to Easter. And I think if we fail to engage these questions, including an awareness of the themes of this holiday, I think we run a risk of perpetuating the very structures of oppression and injustice our heroes sought to overcome. We also run the risk of failing to notice the patterns that connect people throughout the prophetic tradition. Let me try to give an example briefly. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter while imprisoned within the Birmingham City Jail, a letter that has since been read, studied, and used as an illustration, as motivation of the prophetic tradition of which he is a part. I wish we had a lot more time to go into every section of this beautiful letter, and I hope you will look it up at home and read it. MLK wrote that sometimes the prophetic tradition is hampered not simply by the outright resistors of change, of those who benefit most from or wield most aggressively, most intentionally, the powers of oppression and domination. Rather, he writes, quote, I have almost reached the regret regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate. But how can this be? King's argument is indicative that sometimes the prophetic tradition that is our second UU source is held back uh, by those who are in the closest proximity or alignment with it. And in this case, the white moderate is the one who generally supports desegregation and integration in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. But because of the reason, uh, because of this reason or that, they refuse to fully embrace the movement for Black liberation. The white moderate then both literally and symbolically as a sort of archetypal figure is the one, quote, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with you with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. And this last point is where I want to end today. King argues that the prophetic tradition calls us to move beyond the myth of time or the inevitable progress of time and realize that no one's liberation can be put off for a more convenient season. In other words, time itself does not heal all wounds. Time itself does not inevitably lead us forward. The story of Easter gives us a sense that a happy ending is always just a few days away. And yet it isn't always. It is not inevitable 
It is not written in stone that Sunday will always follow Friday, that life will always follow death. Instead, these new possibilities, oh, excuse me, instead, these new possibilities emerge, as King writes, through the tireless efforts and persistent work of all people to rise up and carry forward the message of love and peace and justice for all. It is up to us and to everyone as inheritors of the prophetic tradition to continue it, to extend it, indeed embody it here and now on this Easter morning. Friends, you are the promise of Easter, the expression of the new spring, the lengthening of days, and the hopeful tomorrow. May you, may we, may all not take for granted the legacy and lineage left to us. May we rise in hope for what might happen next if we are only so bold to make it so. May it be so. And amen.